Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. Be sure to look for the Law Enforcement Today Radio Show all over social media. We're on Facebook. Look for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. On MeWe.com, look for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. On Twitter, follow LET Radio Show PO1. On Instagram, follow LET Radio Show Podcast. On Rumble, look for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. And on Gab.com, search for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Again, our website is letradioshow.com. Hope to see you online soon. Calling us from Vermont, we have Charlotte Bismuth on the phone. Charlotte is a former Manhattan prosecutor for the District Attorney's Office and also the author of the book. I'm going to read the title for you. It's a great title. Bad Medicine, Catching New York's Deadliest Pill Pusher. Charlotte, thanks so much for being a guest on the Law Enforcement Show. Very much appreciated. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very honored to be on the show. I think you might be the second prosecutor I've had on the show. I jokingly say this all the time. I don't get along with lawyers. Prosecutors are an exception. And uh, there were times, and we'll go over it later on, but there, there are times where police and prosecutors... Had a little bit of animosity towards each other all the time, but um, we'll talk about that later. First, your book, Bad Messing, Catching New York's Deadliest Pill Pusher. It's available for purchase now. Where can people buy it? You can order it on IndieBound, which will send you to your closest independent bookstore. Of course, it'll also be on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and anywhere else that books are sold. Awesome. And basically, the title is self-explanatory. It's about catching a New York pill pusher. Was this a doctor? It was. uh, He was a pain management doctor who had his clinic open only on the weekends. During the week, he was an anesthesiologist in a New Jersey teaching hospital. We became aware that he was selling prescriptions from his weekend clinic and started an investigation in 2010 that ended up lasting four years. Ultimately, he was convicted of manslaughter for the overdose deaths of two patients. So he was not only a doctor, but he was a doctor who knew what he was doing, who could have done better, and uh, who ultimately is now known for being the first doctor in New York State to have been held accountable for overdose deaths. It sounds to me like he was convicted at trial. He was. We had a four-month trial, which felt like 40 years. Uh, We presented 72 witnesses and uh, laid out a very complicated scheme of insurance fraud, also uh, the reckless endangerment of a number of patients, uh, dozens of sales of prescriptions in exchange for cash, and financial records that showed that he had accumulated over $500,000 in cash in just four years. That's an amazing amount of money. All, all too often, people get the, the idea in their head when you talk about drug dealers 
and my experience working narcotics as a cop in Baltimore, there was street level narcotics enforcement. Uh, and then I progressed and wound up being detailed to DEA going after very organized, very violent Jamaican cocaine organizations uh, that had their roots all the way down to Miami, Jamaica, uh, up through Baltimore, parts of Philly, and New York as well. Now, when we say drug dealers, that's what people think of. They, they imagine that quite often we don't get the idea that a drug dealer would be the doctor in the white lab coat. Absolutely. And that, you know, that was a, a tough uh, issue in the beginning of the case. Even for me, I have to admit, I, I had only worked one prescription pill case before this one. The complaint landed in my hand unexpectedly one day. When I saw that it was a doctor, my first thought was, well, am I the right person to be handling this? We're a prosecutor's office. We're not a medical oversight agency. Aren't, aren't there people in the state whose job it is to make sure that doctors are prescribing the right medication? So really the first question was, you know, was there a crime? And when we realized that there was, then the issue was, well, do the laws really have doctors in mind? And that was, a, that was another big hurdle. And the fact is that you're right. People even legislators uh, at the time, did not contemplate that doctors would betray the trust of the public, of the government, of their patients, and exchange prescriptions for cash. And I've read and I've seen many reports of doctors uh, writing prescriptions for opiates in return for sexual favors. I've seen all kinds of things. And I'll be honest with you, Charlotte, it's shocking when I see it. And part of me says I hold them to a higher standard. We've had lawyers do shady things. We have police do shady things. And when they do those things, I personally, in in the area of the police, when they violate the public trust, I'm offended and I'm angry. And and so when I look at doctors doing this, I'll be honest with you, I don't have a, a, a point of reference to say, oh yeah, I can understand, but it seems shocking, but I'm not surprised. I, I hear you, and you know, I think I definitely agree with you that any public servant is held to a higher standard. With doctors, I think it's even tougher because they swear an oath to do no harm. We trust them with our children, we trust them with our elders, we trust them with the most vulnerable people emotionally and physically in our community. Um, the government licenses them to allow them to put out there these uh, medications that, you know, if mis- misused or put into the wrong hands can have devastating effects. So it, it really felt like a betrayal. And I think all of us on the team, we built an incredible team. Uh, this was absolutely a, you know, a team effort between um, attorneys. Uh, I was the initial ADA on the case. I was joined by a senior ADA who'd prosecuted homicides for 20 years. I was joined most importantly by uh, my partner in the investigation, Joe Hall, who was a veteran NYPD homicide detective. He had never seen anything like it. We felt a sense of profound pain, profound betrayal, uh, seeing what this doctor knew, the warnings that he'd received, the desperate pleas and calls from family members, the calls from emergency rooms and hospitals telling him, his patients were being revived from overdoses, uh, that they had overdosed on the medication he has prescribed, and nothing stopped him. So I, I agree with you on that. It was, um, it was, you know, it was hard to have 
sympathy is the wrong word, but as a prosecutor, obviously your job is always to be sure that you're not just, you know, looking for a conviction, but that you're doing justice. And every step along the way, our team struggled with the question of, you know, are we doing the right thing? Are we getting the right facts? Are we understanding them correctly? And, you know, time after time, we would come up with reasons to think that, you know, maybe we misunderstood. And every time it turned out that, you know, no, this was deliberate. This was motivated by greed. He had full knowledge of the consequences, and he did it anyway. It's sad to say, but it happens. And, you know, as a police, our job was a little bit different. For those listening, when there was probable cause that a crime had committed or was going to be committed or whatever, we took action. We presented the case to the state's attorney's office, and, and they decided to prosecute or not. And, and quite often, there, there was sometimes heated. However, everybody we encountered that broke the law didn't get arrested. And when we return, we're going to talk more about that. We're going to talk more about the discretion used and how you pursue this investigation. This is the Law Enforcement Today show. We're talking with Charlotte Bismuth. She is a former prosecutor from Manhattan DA's office and also the author of the book, Bad Medicine, Catching New York's Deadliest Pill Pusher. The place to be online is our Facebook page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today radio show. You'll get access to unique news articles, editorials, and so much more. Ever find yourself in a situation where you can't listen to the whole Law Enforcement Today show? Never fear. Past episodes are available online as a podcast, and you can listen for free. That's right. The Law Enforcement Today podcast is free. Do a Google search for Law Enforcement Today podcast, or simply go to letradioshow.com and click the Be Heard tab. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Instead of living your dreams, you're living with debt. Now there's a way you can take back control with one simple call. If you owe $10,000 or more in credit card debt, you qualify to receive a free, no-obligation consultation. Call the Debt Helpline now. One simple call is all it takes to get the ball rolling to a debt-free life. Call the Debt Helpline now. 800-709-4389. 800-709-4389. That's 800-709-4389. Are you wondering where you can find more great podcasts? Head to letradioshow.com, click Be Heard, and discover other fantastic podcasts like this one. Also available on our free app, all at letradioshow.com. Return conversation with Charlotte Bismuth. Charlotte is... A former prosecutor with the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, also authored the book Bad Medicine, Catching New York's Deadliest Pill Pusher, available for sale wherever books are sold right now. And I, for one, can't wait to read this. Charlotte, I want to go back into your history a little bit. At what point in your life did you say, hey, I want to be a lawyer, and then said, hey, I want to be a lawyer and a prosecutor? Well, actually, I think the first thing I knew was that I wanted to be a detective. I was one of those kids who had the fingerprint kit with the powder and the magnifying glass. You were an investigative geek like us, then. (laughs) Absolutely. And I realized that I wanted to practice law after a few years in public service in uh, New York City agencies. I worked for the Parks Department, and I worked for um, the New York City Civilian Complaint Review Board, and I became really interested in how is it possible from an operational standpoint to keep a city like New York City safe? 
and what does it take? You know, and what's the balance between enforcement and working with the community? I, I really wanted to understand that. Right. Um, and I was also really driven by a sense of justice. I was concerned about victims. I was concerned about the criminal justice system. And I knew that as a prosecutor, that's where I had the greatest uh, hope of making a difference. I didn't get in the first time I applied. Um, I wasn't a U.S. citizen yet. I'm originally from France. I finally got my citizenship. I reapplied. I got the job. Um, I worked in the appeals department first for two years, and that meant arguing, you know, defending convictions in front of a panel of judges uh, who interrupt you all the time. It was high adrenaline, but I really wanted to work directly with victims, and I wanted to investigate cases. So I transferred to Special Narcotics, where we investigated felony narcotics cases within the five boroughs, and I really cared about those cases. I don't believe that drug cases are victimless crimes. They're not. They're not. I've wished that people... There's two things that happen, and and I do this quite often, Charlotte. One is, and personally, I want people to understand this. If they legalize marijuana everywhere in the United States, I don't care. I I don't care. I I don't drink. I don't do drugs. I, I don't even smoke anymore. I try not to curse, and I try to eat healthy. I'm the boringest guy on the planet, and I'm totally okay with that. But when people back in the day would say, look, you know, it's just a nickel bag of marijuana. It's just a dime bag of marijuana. I said, well, you, you realize that all the violence going on in Mexico, all the, the people being put in 55-gallon drums and set on fire and, and shot and killed, you're giving money indirectly to those dealers to buy weapons. You realize that, don't you? And they're like, no, not me. No, that's just that. And the other aspect is if people could see what it does to neighborhoods, I remember vividly policing in Baltimore, and and people would tell me, look, at 4 o'clock in the summertime, we got to go inside because I don't dare let my kids be in the front yard or front porch because the guns the, the guns come out, the drug slingers come out, and the, the bulls start flying. It's just not safe. People don't see that. I think uh, the difficulty is seeing the entire picture, which is not just the, uh, not just the violence, but also the... In- incredible um, destructive power of the substances themselves. And I think one thing I've learned as after working on this case and now working with as an advocate for victims of the opioid epidemic is that um, these drugs are incredibly powerful and there is so much stigma in society about people who become addicted to these drugs that, you know, we really, really need to be extremely careful about how we how we think about the problem and how we try to fix the problem Absolutely. and it's it's very complicated um, but in ter- you know in terms of what what drove us to this case you know Joe Hall who again was my constant partner in this investigation he gumshoed on the streets and I worked in the office researching the law looking up uh, prescriptions trying to figure out what avenues were open to us for prosecution working with the rest of our team uh, you know, we just had never seen this level of callousness. And we started meeting with the families of the overdose victims who felt like they were the ones who had done something wrong. They felt like they hadn't helped their kid, you know, get into rehab. They hadn't been there. They hadn't listened to them. They hadn't spoken to them enough about the dangers of drugs. You know, they thought it was their fault. And they didn't know that there had been a doctor prescribing these medications taking money from their child 
and disregarding all the risk signals. And that really made us sick. And that was something that, uh, you know, to this day, I'm still in touch with many of those families, including uh, some law enforcement families, as well as, you know, young men and women who have had very difficult lives. Um, and they were the ones who kept me going because every every time we hit an obstacle in the case, and at the time I was going through a divorce, um, it was you know, not, not the funnest of times, and I thought of them. And I thought that somebody needed to speak up for them and make sure that we didn't ignore a crime just because somebody with a medical school education had committed it. I'm so glad you did, uh, and thank you to you. And by the way, if you're in touch with the, the rest of the team, uh, please convey my thanks too, because that that's a difficult thing. You, you talked about... I think it was four years that the, the entire thing took? The investigation took four years, and then the trial took four months. At some point, there must have been a decision time. You're like, well, do we get involved? Do we not get involved? Do we pursue this? And then you, you go through all these hurdles, and you, you, you jump over one, you clear another one, you clear. There must have come a point where you said, that's it. We're going after this guy. Was there a moment, an aha moment for you? We went, this is you and a team where we're going, that's it. We're going to do whatever it takes to get them. Absolutely. We, we were at the point before the Laffer murders, before the murders in Medford, where we were really trying to figure out, you know, what's the right way of doing this? What are the laws that we can use? And when that crime was committed, which really broke us, you know, to have that happen on our watch, um, it broke us, and we decided it doesn't matter what the other agencies are doing. If the DEA can't do anything, they had bureaucratic issues. If the medical oversight agency can't do anything, we're just going to have to shut him down any way possible. So what we did was we built an indictment based on what we could prove at the time. We had enough evidence to show that with respect to one patient, a young man who was uh, 41 when he died of an overdose, that Dr. Lee, the name of this doctor, had disregarded warnings from hospitals that um, this gentleman was abusing fentanyl by, fentanyl is a patch, it's a pain relieving patch, um, it's sold as duragesic, and what he was doing was that he was sucking the medication out of the patch and overdosing on it. It is incredibly potent. We're going to take a short break. We're talking with Charlotte Bismuth. Charlotte is former prosecutor for Manhattan District Attorney's Office and also author of the book, Bad Medicine, Catching New York's Deadliest Pill Pusher. There's only one official Facebook page. What you do, you do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today radio show. Click like and follow. There you'll find updates about upcoming episodes of the radio show. You can contact me. We also find unique, one-of-a-kind editorials and news articles. That is our Facebook page, Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Be sure to click like and follow. We'll see you there. This is the Law Enforcement Today Show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Attention real estate investors. Do you need cash immediately? If you own one or multiple rental properties, you can use your equity to get cash out fast. The best part is we don't need tax returns or even a good credit score. At America's Loan Source, we are not a bank and we don't have bank rules. We make the decisions to loan you money and there's no limit how much we can give you. 
Some clients have gotten as much as $500,000 or more within days. Use the money any way you want. If you own one rental property or a hundred and COVID has left you in a cash crunch, we can help you turn your equity into fast cash. Call now for details and close in as little as 10 days and get the cash you need. 800-296-1242. That's 800-296-1242. Back to our conversation with Charlotte Bismuth. Charlotte is a former prosecutor for Manhattan District Attorney's Office and also author of the book, Bad Medicine, Catching New York's Deadliest Pill Pusher, which, by the way, was a doctor. We're going to return that conversation in a moment. Before we went to break, Charlotte, we're talking about using discretion, seeking justice, those sort of things. And that's a term that's used and abused quite a bit nowadays about seeking justice part. But an example was we didn't arrest everybody that broke the law. I worked in very high crime areas uh, of the city, and there were people, there were older people in particular, they used to walk to the grocery store, they always carried a little Saturday night special gun in their pocket uh, that wasn't registered. These people weren't criminals. They they weren't bad guys. They weren't out looking to rob people. We left them alone. Uh, then you had some people that maybe got in trouble when they are 18 and shouldn't have had a gun, but they lived in a really bad area, and here they are 45 or 50 with their family, and they kept one in the house for protection. You can kind of tell after a while who's a bad guy, who's not, especially if you investigate. So when you guys, I say guys, men and women, decided you get this case, there must have been a lot of gnashing of teeth saying, do we go after this guy? Absolutely. And, you know, I, I didn't ever trust myself to know who was a bad guy, who was a good guy or woman or um, because I always had to remind myself to get down to the facts. That was, that was my job as a prosecutor. Mm-hmm. And in this case, um, you know, the, the first part of the case, we struggled with, you know, do the laws even see this as a crime? Why aren't the medical oversight agencies doing anything about this guy? And what was very tough for Joe Hall and I was that we were starting to learn about overdoses. And progressively, we learned about 16 overdoses individuals who either were still his patients at the time of their death or who died within a year of leaving his practice. Now, that's a shocking number, shocking number. And as Joe and I uncovered these deaths one by one, with every single one, we got the autopsy reports, we spoke to family members, we tried to come up with a system for determining which ones we could charge and which ones we couldn't, but we really felt like we were walking in untreaded territory. Um, there was no roadmap for this, and we had to develop you know, systems to review data, systems to investigate a homicide where the person had been dead and buried for years and nobody had assumed that this was a crime. Um, it was hard. It was very hard, and what drove us, you know, day after day was that we saw that there was a public health emergency. We saw that he was abusing his position, abusing the trust of the public, profiting from the misfortune of others, and, uh, you know, Joe and I were never going to stop, and ultimately, a turning point in the case, I don't know if you remember the Medford murders when David Laffer 
uh, a young man who was addicted to hydrocodone went into a pharmacy in Medford, Long Island, and murdered four people in cold blood. Yes, I do. Well, he was a patient of Dr. Lee. And the day that I heard about that case was one of the worst days of my life. Um, And I went into the office. My uh, forensic analyst was in there with me. Our boss, at the time I was at the office of the Special Narcotics Prosecutor run by Bridget Brennan, who is an incredible force in this fight, Um, she came into our office, and at the same time we all said, you know, Medford, uh, why don't we check to see if any patients of Dr. Lee's filled prescriptions at that pharmacy? We did that. We found David Laffer. We ran some background checks on him. We forwarded that information to the Suffolk County Police. Two or three days later, I was in a conference when Bridget pulled me out and told me that David Laffer had been arrested. And, you know, I had a, I tell this story in my book, I had a rule that I never cried at the office, ever. And I couldn't help myself that day um, because I really, I would have given anything to have been wrong on that. Well, you're better than me because I've cried in patrol car many times. <laughs> and, and, you know, I didn't do it in public. Uh, the, the only exception being would, would be by police funerals. And uh, th- there were some scenes where little ones were, were killed or severely injured that just really hit we, we had a job to do so you, you had the emotions later on at least i did i, I want to say this very quickly you know the opiate problem is so so large and so many people out there have become addicted uh, you have a couple orthopedic surgeries it doesn't matter your walk of life and you're prescribed these heavy duty opiates and, and you could be you get a real problem very very quickly if you know someone like that uh, I highly recommend you contact Transformations Treatment Center in Delray Beach, Florida, 888-991-9725, online at transformationstreatment.center. doesn't matter. Police, they've got a special program for law enforcement, first responders, military, for PTSD-related symptoms and substance abuse, but every walk of life has been affected by this. And, and back to the pill mills. I remember when they started popping up. That's what we called them. Uh, I think Kentucky was big for it. Florida was big. Uh, a few other states. I never thought of New York City. I never thought of New York State. I keep going back to this thing of we think of the drug dealer being some guy in a seedy, run-down, tough area. Uh, and those those do exist. But we forget about the doctors who put people to sleep for a living. And one of the big red flags should have been that he was anesthetist during the week, and then he had weekend office hours at a pill mill. It was cash only. That right there is a huge red flag. Well, even even worse than that, he made three to four hundred thousand dollars a year as an anesthesiologist, but that wasn't enough for him. Where do I sign up for that kind of money? I'll t- look, I'd be fine on that. Well, I think I think that affected the jury when they heard about that because. He didn't have to open up this clinic. He wasn't doing pain management out of the goodness of his heart. But, you know, to, to go back to your question about pill mills, that's a very fair point, and actually that's something that we thought about a lot because the typical pill mill is a clinic where not only the doctors prescribe the drugs, but they actually dispense the pills right there, which is allowed in certain states and not generally allowed in New York State. So we were dealing with a very different case, which was another obstacle at the beginning where we thought, well, can we prosecute this doctor? He's not giving the pill to the patient. He's writing a prescription, and then the patient goes to the pharmacy, gets the pill, and then the patient 
may take more than they were prescribed. Right. And there was a lot of debate about who's responsible for that. And our position over and over again was he is the one who has the knowledge. He went to medical school. He was trained in the opioids. He was even trained in how to treat opioid dependence and addiction. And yet he did it anyway, and he did it in exchange for money, and he did it even when he knew that their lives were at risk. And didn't so, care. He didn't care. That's the thing. That's the real thing that bothers me. And look, there are people, you've seen it when you're practicing as a prosecutor. Uh, every police I've known have seen it, and most people I know have seen it to some degree or another. We are, we have a lot of people that just don't care about the welfare of their fellow man. I don't consider myself to be one of them. And most police I know were not one of them either. And by the way, most prosecutors definitely were not one of them. Because unlike what you see on television, the prosecutors don't make a lot of money either. And they work long hours. It's a thankless job. It's a tough job. And the difference between you and policing is I didn't have to go to school for like 87 years. <laughs> right. And, you know, I, I will say I, um, I found that I never knew from someone's profession I met defense attorneys who were as committed as I was yep. um, to, you know, caring about victims uh, because sometimes a defendant in one case is a victim in another. There's a saying, you know, you don't choose your victims. We are to take a short uh, break. We're talking with Charlotte Bismuth. She is a former prosecutor and author of a great book. If you haven't done so already, please download our app. It's 100% free. We got versions for your Android and iPhone devices, 100% free. You can download them today at our website, which is letradioshow.com. That's letradioshow.com. Be sure to get yours today. This is Law Enforcement Show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Want to fly somewhere? Looking for cheap flights or cheap tickets? Then call. That's right. Call the low-cost airline travel hotline now for prices so low, we can't publish them anywhere. Low-cost airlines has all kinds of cheap travel deals. Fly domestically and save up to 75%. You can even fly internationally and save even more. Yes, fly anywhere in the world and save a lot of money on your plane tickets. We'll even save you money with cheap travel deals on hotels, rental cars, even complete travel packages. So don't book your tickets until you call us first for the absolute cheapest prices on U.S. and international airline tickets and hotels. Call right now for prices so low they can't be published. Travel experts are here 24-7 to help. 800-451-8603-800-451-8603-800-451-8603. That's 800-451-8603. To our conversation with Charlotte Bismuth. Charlotte is, uh, she's like the second prosecutor I've had on the Law Enforcement Today show. I'm honored to have her here. She's a former uh, Manhattan District Attorney's Office prosecutor, also author of the book, Bad Medicine, Catching New York's Deadliest Pill Pusher, who is, by the way, a doctor, a medical doctor. Uh, we'll talk more about that in a moment. And she's originally from France. You must be the first person from France I've ever had on the show. Well, good. I, I hope I'm uh, doing a good job representing my homeland. You're busting all kinds of stereotypes right now. Uh, you know, I think if you dig down deep enough, nobody's a stereotype. Isn't that the funny thing? I, that's another reason why I do the show, because there's so many stereotypes uh, pre presented by Hollywood. 
TV, movies, social media, news about police. Uh, and by the way, there's quite a few about prosecutors. If you watch these shows, Law and Order, they've always got these certain people that fit a mold. And when I think of France, I've got to confess, I think of berets and parlez-vous and uh, cafes and everything else. And part of it's very nice. Uh, but part of it has a very negative tinge to it. So uh, you're, you're busting a whole lot of stereotypes. <laughs> Good. Well, I, yeah, I did not wear a beret to court. So uh, that might have made it more fun. <laughs> that probably worked uh, in your favor. But uh, when we get back to this investigation, and the reason I, I want to go back to it is, I'll give you an example. When I was a young policeman in Baltimore, and I got to see what happened, and we talked about this earlier. We talked about the violence, and everything that goes along with the drug game. Uh, and, and there were kids I met that were 10, 11 years old, and then four or five years later, I was on scene, they got in the drug game, they, they shorted the drug dealer, and they got shot and killed. And there was there when he took their last breath. And that's one of those times where you cried in a police car. It just, it, it is. The other thing is, you get to see this, but one thing we didn't talk about is you see the degradation of what it causes to the person that's afflicted. Uh, when we see opiate addicts, we used to have heroin addicts that would have to wear scarves around their necks because they had no veins and so many abscesses, or they had big hands we called boxing gloves, uh, and what it did to families. And it's just heartbreaking to see. And I was there when many people died with a needle in their arm that's all a part of what happens. And it's, it's the same when it comes, the drug comes from a doctor, a malicious doctor like this guy, or the, the street pusher. It's devastating. And I'm, I'm sorry that you saw that. And I, you know, I think of every single one of those people that you have in your mind had a family and a mom and a dad, and that's devastating. Yeah, uh, it is. You know, one of the one of the difficulties I think has been that with uh, the opioid epidemic, we've realized that there are also some lines that are blurred. And you know, what the cases against doctors make really clear is that there are people who are selling only for profit. When someone is addicted to these drugs, to me at least, uh, that is something that is a different story because I understand the power of this addiction and the destructive force of these drugs. But a doctor who has the education and the means and the resources and who is really doing it for profit, um, that to me is truly a drug dealer. Yeah, and it it represents when they do it for cash and they don't care. It it represents the worst of the worst. Uh, And by the way, there are so many people that, that develop drug addictions and I'm as guilty as the next person coming up with, sometimes I have this thought, that right now as we speak, there's someone trying heroin for the first time. And I'm thinking, what are they, stupid? They think they're going to be the one that's going to be okay with it? But I, I lose track of, I had a guest on the show, was a motorcycle cop, was in a very bad accident, almost lost their leg, had multiple, I mean, maybe 30 orthopedic surgeries, and they were prescribed the oxys, the, the hydrocodones, all the heavy hitter stuff, and they developed the problem. I want to tell people out there listening right now, I don't care who you are. If you're prescribed these long enough and you take them long enough, you're going to have a problem and it's going to devastate your entire life. That's right. I I have four kids. Um, I had, you know, I had them by C-sections and I was given, I was sent home with oxycodone. And at the time with my last, my third one, we had just finished the trial. And I remember looking at the doctor and thinking, you know, where have you been? 
for the past 10 years, right? Haven't you understood that sending somebody who is recovering from surgery, um, you know, may have uh, postpartum anxiety or depression, sending somebody home with this is, you know, it's like a, a Russian roulette. Um, and it's it's so true. I used to, when we interviewed uh victims in our case with Joe, it was so important to us to always understand who the person was deep down, not see them through their addiction, not see them through what they had done. And I can tell you some of the bravest people that I have ever met are people who pushed through an incredible struggle against these pills to uh, report the doctor to the police, to testify at trial and to stand up for people who could no longer speak for themselves. And I will, you know, I will never forget the bravery that I witnessed. There was one young woman whose father actually had been a police officer um, who had committed suicide in front of her when she was four. She had a very difficult life, and this doctor kept prescribing to her, even though she told him that she wanted to commit suicide with the pills. And she, she testified at court, and she testified holding a stuffed animal in her arms, and uh, she's the bravest person I've ever met. And there's so many people that recover. And that's the other thing. We, where I live here in, in parts of Florida, it's like the second largest recovering community in the United States. I think second to Minneapolis, St. Paul. And there are people that you would never know that they were so far gone on drugs or alcohol uh, 10, 15, 20 years ago. You would never know, looking at them today, that, that they had a serious problem. There's so many people that recover from this. Uh, and I don't want to paint a doom and gloom that everybody's going to die image. But people, if they develop a problem with this stuff and they don't get help, that's usually what happens. And it bothers me, to be honest with you, Charlotte, it bothers me immensely that a, that a medical doctor just didn't care enough and said, I'm going to write these scripts anyway for money. It's incomprehensible. We... My uh, my trial partner, a senior attorney named Peter Kugation, who had been at the Manhattan DA's office for a long time, um, now unfortunately he is uh, he has ALS, so he's been in the hospital. Um, he used to tell me, as did Joe, he'd never seen anything like it, and to this day he still tries to understand what this doctor was thinking and what motivated him. We we never understood, and at sentencing, the doctor. Uh, he was sentenced to 10 to 20 years. He made a statement where he denied any responsibility. And all he could say to the families was, I'm sorry for the loss. But he never admitted what he did. And it was painful. Um, it didn't prevent one of the moms from standing up and saying that she forgave him. And that, I think, goes to the point you just made, which is that you know one of the really important parts of recovery, I think, on a personal level for people struggling for addiction, but also on a national level for all of us having gone through this opioid epidemic is accountability. When you stand up for what's right, when you report something that you see that's wrong, when you have the courage to come and testify, even though it's the hardest thing you've ever done, uh, when, you know, when you fight to get closure for some families who have been struggling, it helps. It's incredibly hard, it's draining, but it helps, and it helps people move forward. And I think if there's any message that I want to get across with this book is that working together, uh, we can help people on an individual level, but I think 
you know, we can also take stock of the incredible loss that we all suffered and, uh, you know, and, and try to move forward. A big uh, clap on the back for you and your team. Uh, you, you can always say we did something. And I, I know that there are a hundred other ones that popped up after this guy, but you guys did something. Uh, your book, Bad Medicine, Catching New York's Deadliest Pill Pusher, where is it available for sale now? It's available on IndieBound if you're online, uh, which is a service that will connect you to your local bookstore. I really believe in supporting our local small businesses. It's also on Amazon. It's on Barnes & Noble. And uh, it'll be on Kindle. And hopefully there is a movie in the future. Charlotte, thanks so much for what you've done, and thanks for being guys on the show. Very much appreciated. Thank you so much for having me. Radio is and should always be free. The Law Enforcement Today radio show is also a podcast, and it is free. Costs you nothing. Do a Google search for Law Enforcement Today podcast, or go to letradioshow.com, click the Be Heard tab, and you'll find us right there. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today show. I've got another great guest heading your way next week. Don't miss it. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya. See ya.